Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition, made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palfreman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I are taking a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, our, our topic today is something that um, probably doesn't get talked about enough, and that's the psychological and cognitive problems that can occur in Parkinson's. To talk about this topic, we invited Dr. Dan Weintraub to join us. Dr. Weintraub is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a leading researcher into cognitive changes in Parkinson's disease. And we began our conversation by asking Dan whether or not we've started to notice these cognitive changes simply because patients now live much longer than they once did. I do think that the increased lifespan of Parkinson's disease patients is one reason that we now recognize the high frequency and importance of a range of non-motor symptoms, including psychiatric symptoms and cognitive impairment. In general, most of these symptoms tend to increase as the disease progresses and as patients age. Is it fair to say that some of these symptoms are due to the disease itself and some result from the interaction between the disease and an intervention like a medication? Yeah, so I I think most of these symptoms tend to be complicated in terms of their etiology. So it's hard to summarize in an individual patient what the contributing factors are. And at a group level, it does seem that we can think of certain symptoms as more related to the disease process and others potentially related to the medication use. And some symptoms may even improve at least temporarily with medication exposure. So for instance, if we just talked about a few um, of the specific disorders, in general, the ones that we link with maybe being caused by medication exposure include things such as impulse control disorders and psychosis. Other symptoms may improve with some of the Parkinson's treatments, including apathy and depression, and other ones there may not be a clear impact at all, and that includes cognition, for which we primarily attribute the disease effects to the worsening cognition over time. So let's talk about some of these conditions and give us some idea of of the prevalence. Um, Depression and anxiety, are they very common for Parkinson patients? Yeah, so the original studies for all of these neuropsychiatric and cognitive symptoms were cross-sectional. So we would get a certain sense of the cross-sectional prevalence of these disorders, and they might be on the order of 10 to 30%, depending on the disorder. Now that we have good long-term epidemiological studies where patients are followed um, long-term for 10 to 15 years for some of these studies, we now have a better sense of the cumulative prevalence of these disorders, and it's much higher than we thought. So probably close to 40 to 50% of Parkinson's patients experience some level of depression over the course of their illness, and depression and anxiety tend to be highly comorbid. So most people that have depression also have anxiety and vice versa. Disorders such as psychosis now we recognize can occur um, long-term in 50 to 60% of Parkinson's disease patients. And the long-term cumulative prevalence of cognitive impairment or dementia is now estimated to be somewhere between 70 and 80% in Parkinson's disease. We'll pick up on that a bit later. But Dave, do you want to come in now for a bit? Yes, Daniel. So 
say something more about the nature of depression in Parkinson's disease, given its prevalence. And I think there's often some confusion about whether or not this is depression caused by the fact that you've received this diagnosis and you're understandably feeling somewhat down about that, uh, versus depression that might be more biochemical in its origins. Right. Can you describe the, the range of, of depression that exists in Parkinson's? Yes, I think that is an important point and one that's difficult to answer ultimately because in a given individual, we're not able to currently parse out what's a psychological effect versus a biological effect. And the two are so intertwined that it's maybe ultimately impossible to do that. But it does bring up the issue and it came to the fore in the last year, I'd say, with the um, with the suicide of Robin Williams, who had been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And that question came up, well, did he take his life because he had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, or is there something biological about having Parkinson's disease that led him to become depressed, or had he started medications that then caused him to take his life? So probably the strongest evidence for the biological contribution to depression and Parkinson's disease is the fact that it's one of the recognized pre-motor symptoms. So people that have depression in midlife or anxiety are at increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease compared with those who don't have midlife depression. Now, most people that have depression in midlife don't develop Parkinson's. It's just not that common a disorder, but it does elevate the risk. So that suggests that some of the brain regions that are involved probably in the brainstem before the midbrain is involved and the motor symptoms are produced are associated with mood changes, and that's probably this biological link. The brain regions that produce norepinephrine as a neurotransmitter, the brain regions that produce serotonin as a neurotransmitter that are closely associated with mood are affected very early in the disease course of Parkinson's disease, even before the motor symptoms manifest themselves. In addition to that, though, obviously getting a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is a life-altering event, particularly for patients that are younger, you know, in their 50s, um, 60s, um, that are still having careers, raising families. And to receive this diagnosis is a tremendous um, psychological event, and it would be understandable that patients might become depressed on the basis of that as well. So does that mean, what are the impacts then or the implications of that dual process for treatment? Um, can antidepressants, for example, be helpful in dealing with depression and Parkinson's, be that of a biological orientation or, as you just mentioned, a more psychological kind of experience? So I don't think we know that a treatment should be tailored to what we think might be the etiology of the depression. And again, I think the field of psychiatry has really evolved from this kind of psychological versus biological viewpoint for the probably the simple reason that every psychological event that we have has a biological in, underpinning somewhere in the brain. And any biological event that occurs in the brain can manifest itself psychologically. So trying to differentiate those two or tease them apart is really not possible to do. It may have implications um, how you conceptualize the depression just in terms of trying to fit a therapy that might work for the patient or the patient might be comfortable with. So if a patient is identifying strong psychological or psychosocial issues, 
they may be more amenable to having a therapist or counselor to talk with about those things. Mm-hmm. If a person doesn't feel like there's particularly psychological or psychosocial issues they want to talk about, they don't want to invest the time and energy in going to psychotherapy, they may be more amenable to biological treatment such as an antidepressant. It doesn't necessarily mean that one's going to work better than the other and the two are frequently combined or not uncommonly combined, but it may help um, in how you pitch a certain treatment or what you offer to the patient. And what do we know about the effectiveness of antidepressants in Parkinson's. I know Irene Richard at the University of Rochester and others have done some research into this, but do we now know that those antidepressants um, can be helpful in, in Parkinson's? There's also, for a long time, there was concern about the interplay between antidepressants and certain Parkinson's medications like Azelect. Have those issues been resolved in a favorable way? So when I used to give... Um talks about depression and Parkinson's disease, up until about five years ago, there really was no controlled studies, so um, randomized placebo-controlled studies that demonstrated the efficacy of any antidepressants in Parkinson's disease. So we were really just operating on the basis of clinical experience. Um, Since that time, there have been several positive studies. Uh, The first highlighted actually the effectiveness of an older tricyclic antidepressant called nortriptyline, which affects primarily the noradrenergic system. And that was a study conducted by Dr. Matthew Menza at currently Rutgers University. So that helped support the evidence that maybe this norepinephrine system is important for depression and Parkinson's disease, the fact that this medication was efficacious. Then the next study to come out was a study actually of one of the Parkinson's medications for depression and Parkinson's disease, pramipexol or mirapex, a dopamine agonist. And in that study, they took a large, Dr. Barone from Italy um, was the lead author, and they took a large sample of Parkinson's patients and stabilized them from a motor standpoint and then took those that were depressed and randomized them to additional treatment with pramipexol or placebo. And it showed that the addition of pramipexol on top of their regular Parkinson's disease medication regimen improved their mood compared with the people on placebo. And it wasn't just accounted for by additional improvement in their motor scores. It was really a separate effect. So that suggested, even though it was a a mild effect, it was statistically significant, but it suggested some additional mood enhancement from dopamine agonist medications. And in the third study, which you alluded to, was the Irene Richards study called SAD-PD, funded by the National Institute of Health. And there they actually looked at two of the newer antidepressants, paroxetine or Paxil, which is a kind of a pure serotonergic agent or more of a pure serotonergic agent, and then venlafaxine or Effexor, which is a called a dual reuptake inhibitor. It affects both the serotonin system and the norepinephrine system. And in that study, both of those medications showed benefit compared with placebo. So now, if you add all of those up together, three studies, four medications that have now been shown to be efficacious for the treatment of depression and Parkinson's disease. And then to your other point, there is a concern about, and has been for a long time, about the possibility of serotonin syndrome occurring when you combine in the case of a Parkinson's disease patient, typically an MAOB inhibitor, 
the most commonly used NAOB inhibitor now is risagiline or azelect, and any antidepressant, particularly the serotonergic ones, but really any antidepressant. And if serotonin syndrome does occur, it's an acute medical event. It's an urgent situation because you have a change in mental status. You have neurological symptoms, um, uh, medical symptoms in terms of blood pressure changes. So what it hasn't been clear is how common this actually occurs. And the only new data that I'm aware about regarding this is when we took a look at the Adagio study and looked at the 100 patients who were taking an antidepressant at baseline of that study and were randomized um, to be on risagiline treatment as well. It was close to 100 patients. And for six months, they were on that combination. And over the course of that six months, there was no adverse event reporting that suggested that serotonin syndrome had occurred in any of these patients. So it's not that these symptoms can occur, um, but if they do, it seems to be uncommon. And these medication classes are commonly co-prescribed in Parkinson's disease patients, but it is incumbent on any clinician who's going to initiate that combination that they um, warn the patient and the family in advance of this possible side effect. John? Yes, Dan. About a quarter of Parkinson patients develop mild cognitive impairment. What exactly does that mean? So it means different things depending on how you define it. So I'd say the recent literature, as you just said, suggests that if you take away demented patients, um, so people with a diagnosis of dementia, because those people are typically excluded from these studies, that maybe 25 to 30 percent of patients will meet some criteria for mild cognitive impairment. And typically what that means in the most kind of general sense is that the patient or somebody in the patient's family or who knows the patient well or the treating provider who's assessing the patient feels there's been some change in cognition compared with the patient's pre-morbid state, so prior to Parkinson's disease. So they can't have been this way their whole life, but they've noticed some cognitive decline. And then second, that based on some type of cognitive testing, there's evidence that the person has some cognitive impairment. And that cognitive testing can range from a very brief global instrument that are um, several of them are commonly used in Parkinson's disease to a more detailed um, neuropsychological battery with multiple tests. So there's a range um, there. And then finally, whatever cognitive impairment that exists shouldn't be so severe that it's significantly interfering with the patient's day-to-day functioning that there can be some mild deficits perhaps, but it really shouldn't be having a very meaningful impact on the patient because if that's the case, um, then the person really um, meets criteria for dementia as opposed to mild cognitive impairment. Now, there have been some longitudinal studies to try and estimate the, the prevalence of dementia in Parkinson patients, and some of these studies show alarmingly high figures, right? Yeah. Uh, like over 80%. I mean, uh, are these... I've heard them... A criticism could be made that these are sort of surviving cohorts, that these are, there might be some artifact of the, you know, you're ending up with just the oldest and sickest people who, who are left alive, and it doesn't give you an accurate determination of what the, I mean, can you explore those methodological issues a bit? Well, I think there are complicated statistical issues at play. So for somebody to make that argument, it's that the people then that are not making it out very far um, who obviously have died of something else, and it could be any number of things, 
that you're saying those patients would have been less likely to be demented than those who survived. And I don't really know that there's compelling evidence for that, not that I've heard. I'd have to hear that argument more. And you can also argue the opposite side of the issue, which is that people now are presenting data of these cohorts that they have that have lived 20 years um, and then look at their dementia prevalence and they find relatively low rates. Well, you could also say then that those people that survived 20 years are a select group of people that the ones that became demented um, before 20 years were more likely to die because we know dementia people don't live as long. So it is complicated. It probably cuts both ways. But I'm not aware of, of people that have clearly presented evidence that if you die before you make it to the end of these studies, then you would have been less likely to become demented in the long term. So as the general population ages, the risk of dementia goes up quite dramatically anyway, right? Yes, that is true. So it's said that a few percent of people will have Alzheimer's at 70, but it's 20% at 80 and 50% at 90, something like that. It, it goes up dramatically anyway. Right. So 50% at 90 is probably a reasonable estimate. So the studies that have been presented of Parkinson's disease patients are significantly higher than 50%. They're 70 to 80%. And also, these are patients that are not making it to age 90 on average. It's not so common for a Parkinson's disease patient to make it that age. So these are people that are dying well before that time point. So currently, what can be done about mild cognitive impairment and dementia? Do we have any therapeutic tools to help these conditions? Well, there's, in terms of dementia, I guess it's easier to start there. We have one FDA-approved medication, rivastigmine, which is a cholinesterase inhibitor on the basis of one large-scale European study that was done. Um, so that's similar to the Alzheimer's treatments, the cholinesterase inhibitors, and we use them in Parkinson's disease patients. That's the only FDA-approved medication class. Memantine, the other one that's approved for Alzheimer's disease, has not clearly been shown to be efficacious for Parkinson's disease dementia, so it's not commonly used, I'd say. So we're left really with huge gaps and holes in terms of our ability to treat Parkinson's disease dementia. In terms of mild cognitive impairment, um, we published a study recently on rivastigmine patch that's in Movement Disorders Journal. There's been one study looking at risagiline or Azelec as a treatment um, for mild cognitive impairment a larger study using risagiline that's been completed and will be published, you know, within the next 6 to 12 months. So there are some studies that are ongoing, including for dementia, using novel agents, different agents. But there's clearly a huge unmet need in terms of the treatment of this problem in Parkinson's disease. Dave, over to you. Let me ask a couple of things about what we know about the difference between cognitive impairment in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Do they really proceed in different ways? In other words, are the cognitive difficulties that people often experience in Parkinson's commonly referred to as problems with the executive function, difficulty in multitasking and so forth? Is it really a fundamentally different kind of cognitive issue than what occurs in Alzheimer's? Okay. Before I answer that, and I won't forget that question, just back to what can we do for MCI and, and, and um, dementia, there is also an active area of research in non-pharmacologic approaches. So people have published exercise studies um, for not only the motor aspects of Parkinson's, but the cognitive. And there have also been some studies looking at cognitive rehabilitation programs, typically using computer programs to improve cognition in Parkinson's disease. 
So that line of research is being pursued as well in terms of what patients can do to actually help themselves. It's a little premature to draw any conclusions from that research, but there are studies that are ongoing. So it's long been thought and, and um, believed that the cognitive impairments in Parkinson's disease are significantly or notably different from those in Alzheimer's disease, with Alzheimer's disease patients presenting primarily with memory and language deficits and Parkinson's disease patients presenting more with executive impairments, attentional impairments. And if Parkinson's patients had memory deficits, it had to do more with retrieval of memory as opposed to encoding, whereas patients with Alzheimer's disease have problems encoding. So I think some are, are thinking shifted a little bit with, with more recent research. One point to make is that by the time somebody becomes demented, so you have an Alzheimer's disease patient who has dementia, and then you have a Parkinson's disease patient who has dementia, it gets harder to distinguish people because the level of impairments tend to be high across the board, um, and the tests become less specific for one domain. So we're really talking more about earlier in the disease course, so, you know, mild Alzheimer's versus, you know, somebody with mild changes in Parkinson's disease. And I think what the recent research has really suggested is that you can have a range of deficits in patients with Parkinson's disease, that memory impairment is more common than we once thought, but so are other things, working memory, attention, visual spatial skills, executive deficits. And there may not be as much of a pattern as we thought, but kind of um, a lot of variability or heterogeneity within the Parkinson's disease population. That's probably more pronounced than the, it seems to be, than the heterogeneity that you see in the MCI or mild Alzheimer's disease population, where the initial deficits typically are in the memory realm or the language domain. And does it mean then that at Parkinson's, um, what sort of continuum is there? In other words, if you start out with mild executive function difficulties, trouble, multitasking, attention, focus, that sort of thing, does that necessarily set you on track for greater cognitive issues as time goes by leading on to full-blown dementia? So I think we don't know the answer to that at this point. One hypothesis that's been put forth for the last few years primarily coming from the Cambridge group and Trevor Robbins and colleagues, is that there may be an executive attention, working memory impairment type of mild cognitive impairment that may be more related to the dopaminergic deficits that are, occur from the disease onset, but that those deficits may not necessarily progress to a more severe stage of cognitive impairment. And it, there's another group of patients that have non-dopaminergically based cognitive deficits or non-prefrontal cortex, more posterior cortex, temporal lobe. And those patients may also have additional pathology, so not only Parkinson's disease, Lewy body pathology, but also comorbid Alzheimer's disease pathology, for instance. And it's this other group that's more likely to develop the, the more severe cognitive changes over time, ultimately leading to dementia. And one last uh, question in terms of the, the continuum, I guess. And that is, Dan, is there any way to associate the kind of Parkinson's? We all know how varied Parkinson's can be, but is there any way to associate the sort of uh, motor symptoms that you have with the onset of cognitive issues? In other words, if you have 
a lot of tremor. Does that does that forebode something ill? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is there a way of sort of sensing what path you might be on? Right. So clearly the, the greatest risk factor, and it's not a Parkinson-specific risk factor, but the greatest risk factor for cognitive impairment is increasing age. So if you're just older or you develop Parkinson's at a later age compared with an earlier age, that's worse. But that doesn't necessarily speak to the Parkinson's itself. It's just the demographics of being an older person. Um, the other interesting demographic characteristic that does distinguish Parkinson's from Alzheimer's is that males with, with Parkinson's seem to have a worse cognitive course than females. And that's actually different in, from Alzheimer's in the sense that female gender is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, not males. So we don't really quite understand that. Um, within the kind of characteristics of the illness itself, Parkinson's, I think the main risk factor that's been identified is the people that have prominent non-tremor features, or what's often called the PIGD subtype, the postural instability gait disturbance subtype, tend to be at increased risk of developing cognitive impairments compared with the more classical tremor predominant subtype. And we don't know the reason for that. One possibility is that these may be patients that are more likely to have comorbid diseases um, that lead to gait and balance problems, such as vascular changes, and it might be the additional vascular contribution to their pathology that makes them more prone for cognitive impairment. So, Dan, I've just got one last question. In, in Alzheimer's, they talk about the concept of cognitive reserve, that you, know, you get patients who don't seem to have symptoms in life, who may live to 90, but their brains turn out to have the pathology. Do you see that in Parkinson's dementia as well? Well, I don't think we know enough about that um, just because it hasn't been studied as well. Clearly, clinically, you do see patients that are old and have had the illness for a long time and still are very intact from a cognitive standpoint. And I don't think we know within Parkinson's disease what are the protective factors that enables that person to get to that point. Does it have to do with genetic factors? Does it have to do with their premorbid educational attainment? Does it have to do with the fact they have a lack of other pathology? Does it have to do with the fact that their Lewy body pathology just hasn't spread in, across the brain the way it has for some other patients, that there's some inter-individual variability in the progression of the synuclein pathology? So there may be many factors involved that I think haven't been teased out yet in terms of this subgroup of patients that do well for the long term. So, Dan, you called um, Parkinson's disease the quintessential neuropsychiatric disorder. Has this been a, a difficult sell both to the research community and also to the patient community, or is, is it something that's now becoming accepted as mainstream? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say it hasn't really been a difficult sell overall. If you're talking about people that see patients day-to-day, -day, so neurologists, movement disorders neurologists, they see these people, they see the problems that they have, they see that they've made progress in terms of managing the motor symptoms, and often then the predominant symptoms tend be, to be in the non-motor realm, psychiatric and cognitive included. So I don't think it's a hard sell working with clinicians. They're happy to recognize that these problems exist, and they are happy to have research conducted in this area and to, to have people to collaborate with, psychiatrists, to help manage the patients. I think from a research funding standpoint, it's a little bit of a tougher sell that the, not the motor aspects of the illness still get the predominant part of the attention. And sometimes there can be 
issues related to ownership of a particular area. So it's typically the, the field of Parkinson's disease has fallen under neurology, and the neurologists are used to handling, you know, most issues that arise in the context of Parkinson's disease. So it, there's also the issue then of sharing the illness with people that are from a different professional background and have a different orientation. Have you found that patients find this difficult to talk about, very, very sort of threatening? I'd say there's variability, but in general, I found the Parkinson's disease patients and their family members to be pretty open about discussing really any of these issues. They recognize when cognitive problems arise and would rather talk about it than ignore it. Most psychiatric symptoms, I'd say, people are open to talk about. I think the, the only issues that I notice are particular problems, and we haven't talked about impulse control disorders today, but um, people that have compulsive behaviors such as compulsive gambling or compulsive sexual behaviors, they may have reasons they don't want to talk about that or share that information, so that, that can occur. And then sometimes there's just the issue about insight, about awareness. So patients may be apathetic or may have some cognitive deficits that they're just not as aware of than other people are. It doesn't mean they don't want to talk about it. It just may not be something they're familiar with, or so they wouldn't talk about it for that reason. Well, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. is Dr. Dan Weintraub, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. And John, um, it's not such a pretty picture um, that Dan outlines both the, the prevalence of, of cognitive uh, difficulties, and in particular, I'm not, I'm not entirely thrilled, I don't think, with uh, the idea of, of having a condition that Dan calls the quintessential neuropsychiatric disease. No, I think it's astonishing that something which popularly is known as a movement disorder can be called the quintessential psychiatric disease. And it's really quite hard for most people to get their mind around. I mean, I think the most common kind of psychiatric conditions that affect Parkinson patients are anxiety and depression. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it is good, I think, that we're finally beginning to focus on this more. And perhaps, as Dan suggests, that's in part because of the death of, of Robin Williams last summer. But it remains such an urgent need um, to treat. And, and as many people seem to now suggest, it probably is the biggest unmet need facing people with Parkinson's. Right. Now, with depression, you can get depressed because you've got Parkinson's disease, but you can also be depressed even before you've got the motor symptoms. One of the prodromal features of Parkinson's is that sometimes people seem to get mood disorders before they've even been diagnosed with the condition. Is that your, your experience today? Well, I have to say, I think I've been lucky, as I have been in almost every regard to my experience with Parkinson's, in, in that personally, I, I've, I've not had that particular struggle. But it certainly seems to be very common. And I also thought Dan's point was interesting, that it's not one or the other. It's not that you're either depressed because you're unhappy about receiving this diagnosis, or that, on the other hand, it's a biochemical change going on in the brain, that there's a kind of one affects the other, that the biochemical affects the, the psychological or behavioral, and behavioral and psychology can affect the biochemical um, state of your brain. And that makes a lot of sense to me, that it's a, just as you know, the mind and body are not entirely separate. I think in this realm, there's a, there's a pretty continuous experience, too. Right. Well, Dave, the, the, the really tough one, it seems to me, for us to deal with, particularly people who made our careers working in intellectual areas like us, is to deal with cognitive impairment and dementia. We tend to look at sort of something like dementia as an all-or-nothing thing, you know, like losing your mind. But I think we've got to look at it more like a disability like 
having difficulty walking, pieces of our ability to think and negotiate mental properties become harder and we can adapt in different ways to, to parts of it. But I think we, we've got some ways to go before we really address this in a, in a constructive way. It's, it's just a bit frightening for everybody at the moment. I agree with that. And I think there is, among other things, just as there's an unmet need to find better treatments, I think there is an, an unmet conversation, I guess, that still has not fully taken place. Dan made the point that he thinks people are you know, ready and, and willing to have that conversation. I'm, I'm not so sure. I think it's the thing that kind of haunts all of us perhaps the most. The degree to which we're all willing to talk about that, I, I think, is a little less clear to me. So hopefully in some ways, John, this, um, this particular podcast and, and perhaps can also lead to a broader conversation of this in, in Portland in, uh, in September of, of next year. Well, I agree, and I think this is the most important conversation we need to have. So that's all for this episode of Portland Countdown. Until next time, I'm John Palfreman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.